You can definitely yeah. hit walls in that in that world. And ruffle feathers, um, too. Oh, <laughs> if you're ruffling feathers while hitting walls, oh yeah, I don't know what you're doing with that duck, <laughs> but you should let that let the duck run that duck against the wall. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What you doing? I'm on a podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. How's your week, man? Well, let's just let's just recap. Let's just rewind to last week. I think it's hilarious. We were literally halfway around the world and we thought we were going to be able to pull off logistics. At least I had hope. I was like, there's still a 90% chance this is going down. You might hear the airport speaker in the background, or I might be just off a surfboard or something, but this is happening. That that adds flavor. That adds flavor. Yeah. And, and it did not happen. Kind of a fun experience in a way. There was a chance on my, my original plans when I was, I was in Portugal Flying back from Portugal, there was a chance we might have been able to get something in after landing in Denver, yep. but flight was canceled, rerouted to Munich, which for the record, if anyone knows geography, <laughs> that is the wrong direction. That is the wrong direction. And so therefore, it got back like a day later as a whole thing. So we we couldn't really make it happen, unfortunately. Can we, can we talk uh, just pet peeves with planes? Uh, I... That is one of my biggest pet peeves. Is with, like I was in New Orleans a while back, and my flight to Denver got canceled. Actually, my flight to Denver was fine. For some reason they pulled me off the plane like I was a terrorist and told me I wasn't allowed to get on. Sent me to another one where I went Baltimore to Denver, and it's like, do you people? Can we look at a map together? Like this doesn't <laughs> really make any sense. Uh, you know what else doesn't make sense? What hiring people for them not to do work. It does in a in an everything bubble, Dougals. Ooh, say more. Well, okay. The Wall Street Journal, you know, for months, at least six months, maybe two years, there's been all these TikToks out there of people saying, my day at Meta, my day at Google, my day at insert big uh, wealthy tech company, where they like do yoga, you know, they like get in at 10 o'clock, appear to do nothing and leave, and then they posts publicly about it and what did you see when you what was your reaction when you saw this because i just thought it was a joke like it was made up it wasn't actually true i didn't think it was a joke well the wall street journal went out found five of those people did real live interviews talked to them and you're right Dougals. it was not a joke there is um a hypothesis here that some of these companies hired out a competition with their competitors to say we have more employees than you but we didn't really we don't really need that there's some speculation that they hired people simply because they thought they might need them in a year or two or they wanted to keep the talent away from their competitors i just want to say that's a great problem to have (laughs) (laughs) when i talk hiring decisions (laughs) With companies I work with, it's usually like, oh, we can do that, but the finances are going to be really tight. Or like, I know you want 10, but we might only need eight. You know, you ever been in a company like this that's just like, hey, go hire 5,000 people. We'll figure it out. 
never been at a company with 5,000 people. <laughs> so, so no. There's an example of here. One recruiter came from Microsoft, got a $70,000 a year bump to go to Meta. And this was her expectations for the first year or two. It goes, granted, she's a recruiter. We're not going to worry about you hiring anyone for your first 12 months. We're just going to get you accustomed to the culture. Sounds like she worked about three and a half hours a day on average. And worked means sits in meetings and hits the yoga studio. I don't know why this is so hard for me to comprehend, but this is bonkers. This individual, I'm sure, is talented. Yeah. Good at their job. And they wouldn't have to be talented and good at their job to do the job that was asked of them for the first year. It would be a small list of people, right, that should be eliminated from consideration for a job in which you ask them to come into the company and not do anything for you. <laughs> well, and uh, not to pick up this individual, but like a recruiter at Meta, a recruiter at Google, a recruiter at Microsoft, a recruiter at Apple, it, you... Your pay is better than almost any other place in the industry. It's not that hard to recruit there. You know, like, it's not the toughest job to start with. Well, actually, it seems like it is. Do you know how hard it would be for you to recruit people if you were asked not to recruit people? It's a good, you know, yeah. I If I was in that position, I feel like I'd get fired because I wouldn't be able to <laughs> yeah, not exactly. do my job. And I exactly. would have hired like 17 people. They'd be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, well, I'm a recruiter and you hired me. So I'm actually doing my job, regardless of what you tell me. My, the, like, if you tell me to slow my roll, too bad. That, that's, that's, that's my whole thing. Imagine so you're a great engineer, software engineer. Somebody hires you and they go, all right, Samuel. Here's your desk. Take a seat. Here's your keyboard. We got a couple monitors up for you. Let's fire up Adam or whatever your favorite text editor, you know, uh, code editor is. Here are instructions for like how we uh, deploy, you know, whatnot. And here's the only catch. If you write any code, <laughs> I swear to you, Samuel, if I see any code from you for one year, every day there will be a pop, cult a, a pop quiz on our culture that you must pass. But if I see any code, <laughs> that guy just like, sits at his computer sweating, like yeah, making exactly. sure he like, doesn't. How do I, how do I night write? He fixed a bug out of, out the door, out the door. I mean, I don't know that I'm saying anything intelligent here, but I'm just flabbergasted. When I saw these stories, I thought people were heavily embellishing what they were asked to do. And they're now on the record in a publication like the wall street journal saying that's not the case and detailing why and that's fascinating to me yeah yeah there there was a, a piece that we put on the sub stack in the hot take section i think a, maybe two or three weeks ago i can't remember we'll put it back on today along with this one that was written by emmanuel majori and it's called i've been employed in tech for years but i've almost never worked and he writes out what the, the cultures of the organizations were like, right, that he was at, how this happened. It's a really well-written piece. There's one quote that I'm going to pull from here that I think is a, it's not a different side, but it's like a, a different view, a different perspective on this too. So it says, employees' focus is all too often on doing their tasks as requested in the allotted time frame without questioning 
their business value, and while following the methodology to the letter. What I think is interesting about this is it's also saying like, there's we're hiring people to not do work and we're hiring people. And I'm going to make an assumption that these people are very talented and good at their jobs. And we're also hiring them without an intention for them to think for themselves. If you think about what many of these organizations are valued at, let's bring it back to investing. Like what investors expect from any of these organizations is innovation, new thought, going outside the box, pushing the limits. And when you're hiring people to not do jack or hiring people just to like follow a process, how is that going to end well? It's not. But the flip side of Emmanuel's quote is, uh, and I agree with his take. I loved this article. Gosh, guys, if you have five minutes and you have any experience with like software design or agile processing, you will enjoy this because it will ring true for you. I'm often the person back when I was in the corporate world that would always say, why am I doing this? Is there a better way to do this? Can I add more value here? And sometimes that rubs people the wrong way too. So I understand both sides of that. There's a reason some people almost get beat down and do whatever they're told, however they're told to do it without critical thought. Yeah, I I get that. You can hit walls. You can definitely hit walls in that that world. And ruffle feathers um, too. Oh, (laughs) if you're ruffling feathers while hitting walls, Oh, yeah. I don't know what you're doing with that duck, but you should let that let the duck run that duck against the wall. Isn't it obvious? I mean, <laughs> run the deck against the wall. All right. Can I fishbowl it for Undelis? All right. I'm going to hop into the fishbowl and I want to talk about this Jason Swig piece. So we bring up Jason all the time, writes for the Wall Street Journal, has his own blog as well. Jason is a, a kind of, it's a different way, but I would put Jason in like the the William Green bucket of of world where like Jason is not uh known to be an investor or not not known for being an investor but is known for understanding knowledge within the investing world they're also different in a number of ways mm-hmm. but love Jason stuff he wrote this piece that is a summary of um of uh, sorry wrote this blog post that is a summary of articles that he's written over the last couple of years and it's called the seven virtues of great investors I'm going to walk through some of these virtues. We can stop where you find interest. What I want to say before we hop into this is what this is not, and what Jason is not saying this is, is this is not the seven things you do to become a great investor. It is not the seven-step process to get 80% returns. I don't know why I went 80. I could have said anything like lower than that. It would have been ridiculous. What this is, is when you look at great investors, what are attributes that come out? Right. And so, so something you say all the time, which I think is great, is like you can't just read something from Buffett and then become Buffett. Like that's not the way it works. But these are attributes that he sees. You want to say something before I hop in? Well, I mean, that's all of the TikTok investors has gone crazy again in the last month. And there are, there's so much garbage out there. Of, oh. uh, these, there's so much garbage that hasn't even read Buffett that they're not even pretending to read, be, read Buffett. But yeah, <laughs> I just say, guys, it, 99% of it is absolute trash. Just run away. <laughs> that's that's one of the uh, the traits here. So one thing I, I'll actually, there's a quote in here that he, that he pulls from Benjamin Graham. It's intelligence is a trait more of the character than of the brain. I want to state that before we get into the seven things. I love that. It makes me think about poker a lot as well, because some poker is a, it's a game of math and a game of psychology. And 
that means that if you just like if you just understand all the math and go in, then you've got you've like checked a box. But it's a lot more about how you perceive the table, how you carry yourself, your discipline, it's all this other stuff. All right, here are the seven. One, curiosity. These are not, this is not a quote, but none of these, most of what I'm about to say are not quotes from what he says. It's like my paraphrasing, but I would say like what he means by it. Curiosity. Always be learning. Okay. Don't be afraid of what you don't know, but what you do. I think that's like really interesting. Uh, definitely think about what you don't know and like be curious and go learn it. But the fear part, I think is one important. What he's saying is that there are non-great investors are afraid of all the things like FOMO. They're afraid of all the things that they don't know. We said great investors, they look to where am I, where am I biased in this? Like, what are the things I think I know that aren't true? Number two, skepticism. And just hop in and interrupt me yeah. at any point. Skepticism is number two. And this is getting back to what you talked about. Investing content, which he calls propaganda, is basically full of a bunch of nonsense. He's saying the industry, what it does is throw a whole lot of numbers out there at you and say, because we know all these numbers, that means that we are credible. And a great investor will look at everything with skepticism. I mean, also the sell-side analysts that often cover these stocks are presenting a case. It, it betters their career to be liked by the company so they get more inside access to the company. So their tilt is always, go not always, frequently favorable to the company. And that gets presented as an expert view of the company. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Third, independence. Don't let others do thinking for you. I really like this one. This is also the one that brought me back to saying again, these are not follow these steps. You become a great investor. Because as we all constantly say is the vast, vast majority, 90 plus percent of people should just buy SPY or VTI or some low cost index fund, right? Which is let, letting the market do the thinking for you, right? In that yep. case. But this is saying, don't just take what somebody is saying as like genius. And then, well, if you, yeah, like, so, and also, if you can't be independent, you can't outperform yeah, first yeah. and foremost. Yeah. And what I think most people do is they run a portfolio that's not SPY or VTI or whatever, but they mirror that index. And so they spend a lot of time getting similar and probably worse returns. If you can't be independent, don't even bother. Just download Wealthfront and move on. That's it's true. It, it costs too much, both from like a mental bandwidth perspective and your time. It costs too much. Yeah. All right. The fourth thing is about humility. Just assume you're wrong. Always. It kind of gets back to skepticism. And uh, curiosity, both those points too. Like, look at what you do. They look at what they do and they assume it's wrong and you test it and, and all that jazz. The next one's discipline. Follow your process. And the points that he actually brings up here are more about the environment. So he brings up an example of uh, Templeton. Templeton moved from New York to the Bahamas and brings up Buffett. Buffett moved from New York back to Omaha. And, and that's just about environment. So follow your process and be in an environment, surround yourself with people, et cetera, et cetera, where you can follow your process, where you aren't just distracted by all the things that are happening out in the world, but you can be disciplined. Yeah, I loved, um, like Guy Spear picked Switzerland to get out of the rat race in New York. Um, Williams Green, Green has detailed this with a bunch of different investors, but a lot of times the folks in sleepy towns like Omaha or the lots of, there's lots of good investors in Southern California 
like Howard Marks and Charlie Munger. And by design, getting out of a place like New York City probably improves your returns. Personally, I chose my basement. (laughs) (laughs) The next one. There you go. (laughs) The next one is patience. This is a long-term thing. This is we hit on this constantly. Like this is a long-term. Like treat it like it's long-term. Got to be patient. And the last is courage. This one probably gets a whole bunch of peeps into trouble with this one. But it's courage. Like you got to make that bet. You got to make that bet. And then this this quote I really liked and also will get a lot of people into trouble. Here's the here's the quote from the piece. You can be pretty sure you're manifesting courage as an investor when you listen to what your gut tells you and then do the opposite. There we go. Mic drop on that. For show. For show. There's an eighth. Sorry. There's an eighth trait that was not in here that I'll state. But it's an important one, right? It's an important one. You're right. Like your investments are good. (laughs) It's like the other one. You can be curious, skeptical, independent, humble, disciplined, patient, and courageous about your apes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, well, that, I mean, that's stuff. Klarman, basically, he always yeah. talks about you have to be different and right. And so few people are basically, yeah, it could be as high as 99% of people. So really good traits. But Diggles, it's it's like an interesting discussion, because you're right, this isn't a template of how to do it. Um, this doesn't mean even if you understand these, this doesn't mean you're, you'll be able to do it. It's kind of just like talking points. Yeah, exactly. I would think of it as you if you if you look back on like your returns and you go, I was curious, I was skeptical, I was patient, all this stuff. <laughs> and my my folio's down, right? This is a bunch of garbage. That's not the right way to use it. What I think is the right way to use it is as you're thinking about yourself, like your own traits, right? The way that you're acting and you go, can I just like let me double check myself? Am I being curious enough? Am I being skeptical? Am I being like that's just the way to do it? It's not like there's no there's no so what on the other side automatically. So I just think it's a good like check and balance for yourself. Yep, I'm gonna jump into the fishbowl like a duck, Ooh. and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna pull out one of my favorite topics, which continues to be real estate. First, we're only gonna talk about this briefly, but the REIT index in the U.S. is at a 14 year low. You can find REITs out there trading at mid 90s fr- prices, and I am. Loving it, digging in a little, uh, adding a, a few small positions and reads. I do not recommend that for anyone, absolutely anyone. And there's a couple of reasons why most of these reads, and that's a real estate investment trust, if you don't know. And I've been looking at commercial reads. Most of these reads have built their business on debt, and that debt matures at different periods. And they they built a business where you could get mortgages at three percent you can't do that anymore and in addition to that headwind you have the headwind say it's like a office property of there being significantly less need so very easily the value of your portfolio could be worth half of what it used to be worth and sometimes more than that depending on how much debt you're using depending on the demand of your properties, depending on what your if your properties are unique or people can just go elsewhere. Uh, for, foreclosures are going to happen and this space is going to be incredibly challenged. But I love to live in the garbage heap and it's there's some fascinating stuff out there. So that's the REIT side. On the 
homeownership side, there is a chart that came out this week that specifically talks about FHA home buyers, which are home buyers that appear to have slightly lower credit quality. And the way the uh, federal housing authority steps in is they kind of provide a backstop to those loans. So mortgage companies can issue those without taking on all the risk. Did I state that correctly, Douglas? I think directionally, it seems right to me, from what I understand. Perfect. So you can look at a debt to income ratio of those FHA home buyers going back to like 1998. And debt to income at that time was about 35%. Um, it spiked up to 41% in 2008, and then kind of came back down to earth. It's currently at what we believe is an all-time high, according to Fannie Mae, 43.5% debt-to-income ratio. It's high. So this ties into what I talked about three weeks back with home affordability being at all-time lows. I mean, it's effectively saying the same thing in a different way. It ties into another chart floating around this week um, from Goldman Sachs Investment Research that compares the cost of a mortgage payment, basically mortgage payment to income ratio versus rent to income ratio. And this is maybe the best time to rent comparably since at least 1990. Like this just, this stuff is just everywhere and screaming from the treetops that what we have done with home affordability is not sustainable. And I just am kind of waiting for the whole thing to blow up. And it's not like blow up in a 2008 fashion because the problems are different. Anyway, let me pause. And you're saying blow up from the real estate. Like if you just take that lens, or are you saying more broadly? Well, and then real estate has ramifications everywhere else. I'm just saying it's not sustainable. Like no one has money to pay their mortgage. And I'm exaggerating there. And everything else, everything else. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it is this as a a precursor or as a uh, a proxy for like general health, uh, financial health uh, is kind of scary. I fully agree. And coupling this or uh, combining this with all the other stuff that we see of like people going into more debt, even buy now, pay later. I mean, that's like, you can't afford your toaster. Now you can't afford your house. What you want to put your toaster in? You know, I mean, it's it's like, it's really, honestly, I mean, just like all kidding aside, like it's, it's kind of, it's, it is scary. Um, the punch bowl is gone, but no one seems to realize it. You said what you're going to put your toaster in, like your toaster is your most important possession. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you really where, like it. Where am I going to put my duck? Where am I going to put my it's toaster? Like, it's like, it doesn't matter if I have a house or not. I'm going to have a toaster. <laughs> Let me tell you. It, well, it's a brave little toaster, you know. You ever watch that, uh, that movie back in the day? About a toaster? Not just any toaster, but a toaster was both brave and little. It's called the brave little toaster? No. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Uh, this toaster needed it anyway. I, I'm gonna get, it's a, it's a probably a terrible film, but uh, I watched it as a kid and loved it. Okay, yeah. Um, to put a bow on this, like it's just clear to me that real estate prices have to come down. Now, there's another narrative out there, which I'm not sure if it's true or not. Which is there's no inventory right now. So basically, potential sellers. Have said they got used to the inflated prices uh, from 3% interest rates. And so they see what a realtor says their house is worth now and they go, I'm not selling for that. 
Like I have a 3% mortgage. Why would I do that? And potential buyers are going, are you serious? I'm not doing 40% debt to income and paying a 7% rate. Like there, there's just kind of gridlock out there because everyone is used to the way it used to be for the last decade and adjusting to the world as it is today is really, really hard for humans to do. I, I have nothing to add onto that. I have just agree. Yeah. I just agree. Go for it. What's in your fishbowl? I want to talk about active management performance. We touch on this a bunch. We touch on this a bunch. So apologies if you don't want to hear about it, but it's about to be heard about. And there are a couple things I want to hit on. The first thing I want to hit on is uh, the S&P Dow Jones uh, indices came out with their annual report where they look at the previous year and say, how did active managers perform? So I'm going to go through some, some stats there. These are stats we've hit on a few times and they're just, I'm just like drilling in the fact that underperformance is a thing for active managers. You do what you will with that information. Okay. But I just want to drill it in. But this past year, 2022, active managers were rejoicing, rejoicing. They were hitting the streets. They were popping in bottles. Do you know why? No, tell me. Because only 51% of active managers underperformed. It's huge. It's yeah. like best year on record. This is the least underperforming year, <laughs> which is the only way you can really say this. This was the least underperforming year that they've had in the last 20 years. And so people are going wild. And what? The uh, Dow Jones folks were saying, they were like, I mean, th- it was such a weird year that you chose this one contrarian thing, happened to get lucky, and that meant that only 51% of you, like, it's kind of a, it's like sad. Like, it just feel, you know, feel bad for them. But, but people are rejoicing. The, I should say one of, not, not the, but one of the least underperforming years. And that was at 51%. The thing, the other thing I want to hit on here. Is And this is what, I feel like last time I talked about this, you gave me funny eyes. But I want to get your view on this. Because for me, it actually, it's telling, but maybe it shouldn't be. Is I look at how, what is the performance? One year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, right? Which they, they lay out. And for me, when you look at your annual returns across those different time horizons, it should go up, at least generally speaking. Like the the longer the time horizon, the higher the return, generally speaking, I believe for you to feel confident in your, your investing. Because if you say yeah. like, to be simple, if you're like, and, and I say generally speaking, because you can have like your one year, a one year is kind of an anomaly. It's like one year might be 30% return. And that doesn't mean if you're three years lower that that's worse. But I'd say like, you should look at your three, five and 10 and say like, if I'm not doing if I happen to have like a lucky three years, but my 10 years is really bad, then I should probably say like the 10 year is the more reliable indicator than my three year. Like that's kind of what I mean. So let, let me, uh, yeah. yeah, well, 10 year, no doubt a 10 year performance figure is more reliable than a three year. But um, the way my investing style works, and maybe this isn't about me is like, I might hang with the S and P 500 for five years. And then I might do 50% when it does eight. And so to just completely disregard a year or two of fabulous performance is also like for some people, that's their whole secret sauce too. Yeah, but that should increase your 
your five year then. If you if you're the same as the S and P five hundred for four years and you beat it by fifty percent, then your five year is greater than the S and P five hundred. Yeah, but your one year's off the charts. Yes, and that, so that's what I'm saying. You got to throw the one year out. Like the one okay. year is the one that's like that's weird. But if you look like over five, you know, ten, twenty, right? Like, Completely. um, and it's it's kind of like if you look, I'm making numbers up here, but if you look at Berkshire Hathaway, for example, look at like their forty year. Their 30 year, their 20 year, their 10 year, they're looking decades and decades, but they're like, yeah, the last 10 years didn't do all that great compared to the S&P 500. Let's yep. go ahead and talk about our 30, 40, 50, right? And when I generally speaking, you can look across this in like a variety of different like benchmarks that the, the actives measure against. But generally speaking, when you look at how those different categories break down, they get worse the longer period of time that you end up looking at them. And I think that is like, that's a thing for me that I kind of just go... Well, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what, 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 do you, what do you do with that? <laughs> right? Like, I, I, it's telling for me. I don't know if it's telling for anybody else, but it's telling for me. Yeah, that's where I give you the eye roll because, um, <laughs> because it, it mean reverts, right? So, like, the, it should, your 20 year, um, and to be fair, like your example with Berkshire is hilarious because you said like, let's look at the 50 year track record. Well, so few people have a 50 year track record because they go busting or out of the industry. Uh, <laughs> we don't have That's that. Very privilege. That's very true. That's very true. But um, let me, let me see your 50 year. I could just picture yeah. if Warren Buffett was like more like, I don't know, virile, like Warren Buffett was just a, be like, let me see your 50 year track record. Let me see it. But, oh, you got to get me off topic because the whole Chamath Angulator in last year he compared himself to Buffett and he thought he was looking better than Buffett but it was effectively all leverage it, yeah just don't compare yourself to Buffett people it's a dumb idea <laughs> in any any metric he'll just be like oh yeah look at this I'm better look at this I bet like he's just better there's no <laughs> he, equal. He, he is better he is just better all right I'll get another eye roll. When I bring this up next time too, I'll get another eye roll, but I'm looking forward to it. I do want to give a shout out to a book I read that I just found hilarious. It's from the memos of Alan C. Greenberg, and he was the CEO of Bear Stearns in the 80s. And these things are classic, man. He had a, a couple key principles. His first is he would encourage people to hire PSD employees. Any guesses on what PSD might mean? No. Poor, smart, with a desire to get rich. Go <laughs> okay. on and on. That sounds about... like some Gordon, Gordon Gecko stuff. I mean, yeah. So, he, like, they're at the heart of Manhattan in investing, right? You'd think they'd want the Harvards and the Columbias and whatever. No, he wanted the smart guy off the street that was eager to work hard. Like, that was his entire hiring philosophy. This guy's a total character. He made up fictitious individuals that he would quote in the memos as consultants, which I absolutely love because instead of writing the $10 million or the $50 million check for the consultants, he said exactly what he knew those consultants would tell him through a <laughs> fictional character. And so he'd be like, I talked to Harold Carmichael today. I forget the guy's exact name. And he told me this and like, run in the streets and follow his direction and then on top of all that he ran this company 
with uh, eye on cost like I have never seen. And as a value investor, you got to respect that, Diggles. So first thing he did in 1985, he stopped purchasing rubber bands. And he encouraged everyone in the company to save the paper clips that were mailed to them. I mean, this is a different time. Email's not really around, right? So everything is being mailed back and forth. So in addition to that, with saving those paper clips, <laughs> he told the purchasing department to stop buying uh, staplers and staples. And he estimated this saved the company something like $80,000 a year. Again, this is 1980 prices. To take this a step further, for inter-office mail, he instructed the uh, secretaries, basically, to start licking the left side of the envelope. <laughs> so the receiving party could reuse the envelope and lick the right side of the envelope. And then he said, and if we get really good about this, we'll leave some room in the center so we can reuse it a third time. Like, this guy's just, I just loved it. <laughs> Check it out. I think it's. I think it's three bucks on Kindle or something. Just loved it. He's insane. This just has you written all over it. Did you get some? <laughs> did you get some ideas for yourself? Well, so for your it actually, life? it actually made me feel guilty because I've been, I've gotten pretty lax on the expense front, and I, I'm. It gave me some ideas for sure. If I get a letter from you with a half licked envelope, <laughs> can you can you do like a you know a call and collect? Right, you call somebody, collect. They have to pay for the call. Can oh, you have like I a collect? They... Can you have like a collect call, collect stamp? <laughs> like you send me something, half licked envelope, and the mail person's like knocking on my door. Like, can I get no? Like, Dude, you know that I put your address on the return address. Send it, <laughs> drop it off at the post office. It's got to be the way. Does that work? I don't know. Let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> No, okay. Uh, so sorry. Kind of jokes aside, what's amazing about this is something you and I talked about off pod. There's this culture. There are some companies, and the reason I talked about this was there's some buzz in the news about Google cost cutting measures. And I don't specifically want to talk about that, but like uh there's a lot of companies that send mixed messages, right? They travel expensively, they host big parties, and then they say, Oh, but don't you dare use rubber bands. And it's like, wait, but you know how much of a fraction of the cost that is compared to all these other large expenses that are on your books? You know, maybe it's you give massive bonuses and then you're really concerned about people having a breakfast that costs more than $8, whatever the case may be. The thing that's so impressive about Alan C. Greenberg, and I, it would have been challenging to work there because every decision, like he is on top of every expense decision as the CEO of the company. I think that really can wear you down. But the thing that's amazing about it is he's true to that. And that was clearly ingrained in the company. There was no lavish parties. There was no, every expense was thought about with great detail. And I kind of think you have to pick one or the other, right? You can choose to focus on expenses and focus on every expense or not. But don't get caught in the middle because that's a tough place to be. Look at you. I thought this was just about licking half envelopes, but you actually got things to say. <laughs> I got a follow-up question for you. Okay. What, what's, the, what's, what's the right approach? To what? 
Well, I've been in organizations that have no one like LC Greenberg, but that have been really focused on expenses and often felt like they missed big opportunities to bring in more revenue because that was the sole focus. And I've been in places uh, that have kind of done the we don't know game where there's some expenses that they really focus on others that are completely ignored and they do take advantage of big opportunities. And then I think in the startup world, world's Dougald, like because of the impact that Google and others had on Silicon Valley, there was a lot of people that took the reverse approach. that was like, we're going to have lavish rewards and we're going to go grow our company. We're not going to worry about expenses. So like, I know you can be successful in a thousand different ways here, but have you seen a place or do you have an opinion about the right approach here? There isn't a right approach. I think you named a couple of things in here. In my, in my view, there isn't a right approach, but I think there are a couple of things you named. One, it has to be authentic. And two, as a business, you need to make money. You have to, and by make money, I'm talking like you have to spit out cash. Like that's a thing that needs to happen. And so it depends on what your funding structure is, what business you're in, and what's authentic to the culture of the organization. To me, like that's it. You can do this in a, in a wide variety of ways, uh, in my opinion, but you have to end up making money. And a lot of times from things that I've seen, not necessarily like companies I've been in, but like read about, heard about, whatever the version of the lavish party is, um, is not about the lavish party when it's done well. It's about the culture of the organization, the feeling of camaraderie, et cetera. And even that, when you look at the ROI, it's that the the thing that this does for the mindset of the individuals feeds yes. the business, right? Yes. It's not about the lavish party. If you're having lavish party for lavish party's sake, like that doesn't go well. That That's my yep. view. Awesome. That's fair. I agree. Cool. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Hit skippydoogles.com for all things Skippy Doogles. I mentioned it before, the Substack is really awesome. Um, gets you all the reference materials we use on a weekly basis. What am I missing, Doogles? We love that listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. And please rate and review. Go hit that stars or whatever, whatever the version of stars is on the podcast platform you listen to. Appreciate you all. Sweet. Thanks for hanging out with us. Peace.